sense cultivate our motivation and releasing the defects of cyclic existence not only the dukkha of pain but also the dukkha of change that what we ordinarily consider pleasure or happiness is just a different form of unsatisfactoriness it doesn't last long it's the alleviation of a grosser kind of pain but it doesn't bring any final peace in our mind and often just makes our mind more restless craving more and better or afraid of losing what we have and then the third kind of dukkha the dukkha pervasive conditioning that our entire body and mind the basis of the label I is under the influence of afflictions and karma and so sitting with that for a while then we really see there is nothing in samsara to be attached to nothing worthwhile and that the meaning and purpose of our life is to free ourselves from this prison and to attain full enlightenment in order to help others free themselves from this prison of ignorance, afflictions and karma and so with that motivation we listen to the teachings on the Vinaya thought I would um, do a couple of more sutras and then move into a little bit um, some more about the categories of the precepts and all. Uh, what I'd really like to do is in our weekly Vinaya class start at the beginning of this book and go through it together. Yeah. It's a really excellent book. Okay, so here is another um, one from... Uh, the Connected Discourses it's Sutta uh, 16.7 and again um, Mahakasapa approached the Buddha and sat down and the Buddha said to him either you or I should exhort the monastics um, one of us should give a Dharma talk and uh, Kasapa said again Venerable Sir the monastics are difficult to admonish now and they have qualities which make them difficult to admonish. Okay? So admonishment, you know, this is a practice in the uh, Sangha community, in the Vinaya, of helping each other. So when we see somebody going astray, we point it out to them in a kind way, in a uh, in whatever way is necessary to communicate with the person. Sometimes you might have to do it to fight strongly but in a way that's free from judgment on our part and done really to help the other person because they're not 
seeing things well at that time and their minds are getting uh, imbalanced, unsteady, uncalm, uh, harassed, stressed, uh, and basically uncooperative. So we uh, try to, to give advice and counsel. And so Mahakasapa is saying, well, I'd like to, but they don't want to listen. You know, they are, uh, they have qualities which make them difficult to admonish. Okay? So you really want to help somebody, you want to give them some advice that will help them get themselves out of their conundrum. But they're very difficult to talk to. Okay? So what makes them difficult to talk to? Well, there's many qualities. In fact, there's a whole sutta on it. But right now, we'll just take a few. Um, So one is they are impatient. Yeah. And do not uh, accept instruction respectfully. Okay. So like, why do I need to listen to you? You know, I want to do something interesting. I want to get on. I have other more important things to do. Why are you telling me this? You know, and they don't accept instruction respectfully. The way we should accept instruction is with our palms together and say, thank you very much, I'll think about it. But the way these monastics were is, you know, what we were talking about the other day, explaining themselves. You know, well, Kasapa, you don't understand, you know, I was doing this because of this and this and this and that and that and that. And telling the whole story, basically making excuses, you know, why I'm innocent and didn't do anything wrong. And so when people respond that way, then what happens basically is the teacher and the elders stop trying to admonish them, you know, because they're totally closed and, um, you know, you can't get through to them and it just becomes uh, kind of a contest or an unpleasant conversation. And so they just, like Kasapa here, you didn't want to talk to them because you can't get through. They're impatient. They don't accept instruction respectfully. Venerable Sir, for one who has no faith with regard to wholesome states, no uh, sense of integrity, no consideration for others, no energy and no wisdom, whether day or night comes, only decline is to be expected in regards to wholesome states, not growth. Okay? So, here's some more things, the way the the monastics were. Someone who has no faith with regard to wholesome states. So, nobody has any care about karma and its effects. They don't, uh, it doesn't matter to them that virtuous deeds are important. Uh, You know, that wholesome mental states produce good actions that bring happiness, that spur you, or spur you, spur you on the on the path, yeah. They don't care about it. You know, it's like I've got better things to do than to think about karma. That's just a bunch of stuff that people use to make you afraid, or they just space out. You know, karma shmarma. You don't understand. My problem in this life is more important than any talk about virtue and non-virtue. You know, that's the way we are sometimes, aren't we? When we get stuck in a problem, we don't think what is the virtuous mental state with which to approach this problem. What is virtuous action regarding this problem? We're just thinking, what do I want to do? You know, what makes what's going to make me happy? 
Okay. So there's there's no uh, faith with regard to wholesome states, no sense of integrity, and no um, no uh, consideration for others. So these are two virtuous mental states which help us refrain from negative action. So a sense of integrity is not engaging in destructive actions because we have a sense of self-respect, kind of like I'm a Dharma practitioner, I, I don't want to be acting like this. Or I, I took precepts, you know, and I, I, I committed myself to this kind of behavior and so I respect myself, I'm going to continue to keep my commitment and my promise. So that's the, the one of uh, integrity. And then consideration for others is seeing that our, our deeds affect others. And so abandoning negative actions because of the adverse effect it's going to have for others. Yeah. And so these particular monastics, they don't care. You know, they might be playing games. They're, they're, they don't care what effect it has on others. They might be, you know, idle gossiping. They don't care if it affects the lay people's faith. They might be talking harshly to each other or, or lying or, you know, going around complaining and whining. But they don't care if the effect on anybody else. Okay? So, they have no faith with regard to wholesome states, no uh, sense of integrity, no consideration for others, no energy. So, you know, just want to schmooze all day, lie around, no energy for practice, lots of energy for amusement, okay, and no wisdom. So, you know, let alone think about the ultimate nature, they're not even thinking about the functioning of karma and effects and, and, you know, having, you know, any awareness of what's the cause of happiness and what's the cause of suffering and not even thinking about selflessness or anything else to try and resolve their problems. They're just kind of floating along. Okay? So, people with that kind of mental state, whether day or night, you know, whether it's day or night, doesn't matter. Um... Only decline is to be respect, expect, only decline is to be expected in regard to wholesome states, not growth. So people who think in that way, they're only going to go downhill. They're not going to grow. You know, they won't develop any new virtues. They're going to lose whatever virtuous qualities they had. You know, they're just basically stuck and not wanting to get out of it. You know that mental state? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And we can stay in that mental state a long time thinking it's very real and we're really right. And not even, you know, we might think, well, I'm a little bit unhappy, but we don't just, you know, we just stay stuck in it. Yeah? Not really trying to get out. You know, somebody gives us some advice or something to think about and, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. You know, so we don't even try it. You know? How many times do we go and ask for advice and then don't don't do it? Okay, so that's the state here. Just as during the dark fortnight, so the time when the the moon is uh, declining, whether day or night comes, the moon declines in color. Uh, circularity and luminosity in diameter and circumference too 
So, venerable sir, for one who has no faith in wholesome actions, no integrity, no consideration for others, no energy and no wisdom, whether day or night comes, only declines to be expected in regard to the wholesome states, not growth. True or not true? Yeah. So here's Kasapa, you know, a great practitioner who can really give good advice. And he's just saying, you know, these people are in their, in their own planet. Yeah, I don't want to give them a Dharma talk. It's useless. Okay. Um, then he, he, you know, a person without faith, venerable sir, this is a state of decline. A person without integrity, uh, who is un- who is um, doesn't care the effect of their actions on others. Somebody who's uh, lazy, some somebody who is unwise, somebody who is angry, somebody who is malicious. This is a state of decline. Yeah. So if there's some monastic that's just angry and moody and malicious, going around talking bad about everybody else. Um, you know state of decline nobody can really help when there are no monastics who are exhorters you know who who want to teach the dharma yeah uh, either because they have these un, uh, they nobody has these good they all have these net bad qualities then this is a state of decline so this is decline in the existence of the dharma hmm? So, you know, they, they always talk about the Dharma ending age and decline of, uh, in the Dharma degeneration. And it doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside the community. Okay? From our minds. From our minds being overtaken by uh, afflictions. Venerable Sir, for one who has faith in regard to wholesome states, a sense of integrity, consideration for others, energy and wisdom... Whether day or night comes, only growth is to be expected in regard to wholesome states, not decline. Just as during the bright fortnight, whether day or night comes, the moon grows in color, circularity, and luminosity, in diameter and circumference, so too, venerable sir, for one who has faith in in wholesome states, a sense of integrity, consideration for others, energy and wisdom, whether day or night comes, only growth is to be expected in regard to wholesome states, not decline. Okay? So, and then he goes on, a person with, um, with faith, this is a state of non-decline, so somebody who has faith in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, faith in the law of cause and effect, somebody who has a sense of integrity, who doesn't want to commit negativities because they respect themselves and they respect their own practice Uh, that's a case of non-decline somebody who has consideration for others and doesn't want their negativity to affect others adversely and doesn't just stuff it but actively tries to dispel it then that's a state of non-decline somebody who's energetic who really cares about practicing and not just schmoozing um, there's all sorts of ways in which we schmooze, you know, because uh, there there are precepts. Then then there are the kind of rules of the particular monastery, and we find all sorts of ways to kind of circumvent them, don't we? Yeah, 
And we have all sorts of reasons why we can't keep the rules of the monastery. Well, there's this. We do this and nobody knows that I'm doing it. You know, I won't get caught. Nobody comes in my room and sees me doing whatever it is. Or nobody's in the house right now. They don't know I'm doing this. And so we just kind of, you know, uh, circumvent the rules of the monastery. Okay, so it's a, it's a form of laziness and non-energy, isn't it? Yeah, and disrespect to, to the people we live with. Um, but a person who is energetic, you know, doesn't do this. A person who's wise, yeah, it's a state of non-decline. A person without anger and without malice, uh, these are states of non-decline. So that kind of person is, you know, really trying in their practice and working hard. When there are uh, monastics who are exhorters, this is a state of nine decline. And then uh, the Buddha responds, good, good, Kasapa. <laughs> okay? So it's kind of showing us what to avoid and what to practice. And so acting as a mirror for us, um, you know, when our mind gets stuck, to, to come back to this. And, you know, because sometimes if you really care about the existence of the Dharma and then you think, oh, you know, my mental attitude or my behavior is contributing to the, the degeneration of the Dharma, then you go, ugh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, Dharma is more important than me kind of, you know, getting my way here. So I've, I've got to do, I've got to, you know, try to do things better. Or as we were talking last time, want to want to do things better. Okay? Then another one, also in the Kasapa section. So this one, um, the previous one was at Ratagir in the Bamboo Grove, and this one also. Uh, and so uh, this say, it begins the same way with Mahakasapa approaching the Buddha, and then the Buddha saying either you or I should, to, should teach the monastics. Uh, and <laughs> poor Kasapa, he says the same thing. <laughs> you know, the monastics are difficult to admonish now. And they have qualities which make them difficult to admonish. They are impatient and do not accept instruction respectfully. So we just went through that. Okay, then the Buddha says, just so Kasapa, in the past the elder monastics were forest dwellers and spoke in praise of forest dwelling. They were alms food eaters and spoke in praise of eating alms food. They were rag robe wearers because at the Buddhist time they, their robes were made out of rags. It was very difficult to get cloth. So they would go in the cemetery or find you know cloth that was cast off or stuff that was left by the roadside. So they were rag, wear, uh, rag robe wearers and spoke in praise of wearing rag robes. They were triple robe users. Okay, so that our three rows, the Shendup, the Chugu, and the, the Namjar, and spoke in praise of the, using the triple robe. They were a few wishes and spoke in praise of fewness of wishes. <coughs> okay, so they weren't, their minds weren't always hankering after, I want this, I want this, I want that. Okay, I want to go here, I want to go there, I want to have this experience, I want to have that experience, I want to meet this person, I want to meet that person, I want to have this to eat, I want to have that to eat. So, yeah, they didn't have many wishes. They were content 
and spoke in praise of contentment. So whatever they had, whatever the situation was, they were content with it. They weren't always, why do they have to be like this? You know, kind of the perfection of complaining. (laughs) I I have that one down pat. I don't know if any of you are good. I'm, I'm very excellent at complaining. Okay, um, they were secluded and spoke in praise of solitude. So they, you know, they they used to be kind of self-contained. They were kind of all out there and going around town and hanging out with everybody and socializing with everybody and, you know, doing everything. Um, here it says they were aloof from society and it spoke in praise of aloofness. The word aloof gives us this feeling of, you know, they're standbackish and unfriendly. That's not the feeling, okay? When it's saying aloof from society, it means they're not letting their mind get filled with all the normal societal concerns. So they aren't involved with, you know, well, how is my family? And, oh, my brother and sister aren't speaking to to each other. And my parents have financial problems. And they're about to lose the house. And, you know, my mother always fights with my uncle. And my father always fights with my brother. And, you know, how am I going to get them to reconcile? And, uh, you know, the family is just a mess. And this is going on here. And, they, you know, they're supposed to have a big family event. And they won't talk to each other. And, you know, so they don't get involved in all the family affairs and worrying about what's going on in their family. You know, they they don't get all, you know, involved in, you know, oh, my goodness, the economy's go going down. You know, there's a huge recession. What's going to happen? You know, na, 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 you know, kind of or, you know, oh, did you hear there's, you know, the, the sports team, you know, so and so football team won. This is fantastic. And so-and-so golf tournament, you know, they got a million dollars as a prize. Can you imagine? And our team beat their team, you know. Look at the Olympics, you know. Mark Phelps? Michael Phelps? What? Michael Phelps? Wow, he's American. Let's hear it for our country. He got so many gold medals. We must be a fantastic country. You know, and then a few months later, oh, Michael Phelps was smoking dope. My goodness. <laughs> what kind of example is he setting for the young people? You know, what's the what's world coming to? What's the Olympic Committee going to do? Are they going to kick him off? Are they going to leave him on? You know, maybe we should go and convert him and make him into a Buddhist and <laughs> give him the five precepts. And, you know, it, they don't, so aloof from society means you're not, you know, involved with this kind of stuff, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, they were energetic and they spoke in praise of arousing energy. So they had a lot of energy for practicing Dharma and they spoke of arousing energy to others, okay? Uh, then, when a, when a monastic was a forest, forest dweller and spoke in praise of forest dwelling, so living in a simple uh, residence, when uh, when he was um, uh, when when they were alms food eaters and spoke in praise of eating alms food, 
when they were rag robe wearers and spoken in praise of you know simple clothing when they used just their three robes and spoken praise of that when they had fruit, few wishes and spoken praise of that when uh, they were content and spoken praise of contentment when they were secluded and spoken praise of solitude when they were um, reserved from the craziness of society and spoke in uh, praise of, of that kind of reservation when they were energetic and spoke in, in uh, praise of arousing energy okay so when a monastic was like that the uh, uh, when a specific monastic was like that then the elder monastics would invite him to a seat saying come monastic what is this monastic's name this is an excellent monastic this monastic is keen on training come monastic here's a seat sit down Okay, so the elder monastics would treat that person with a lot of respect because he had all those good qualities. Then it would occur to the newly ordained monastics, who are a little slow sometimes, oh, it seems that when a, when a monastic is a forest dweller and speaks in praise of forest dwelling, you know, is a alms food eater, rag robe wearer, you know, triple robe wearer, secluded, you know, all these kinds of things. When he's energetic and speaks in terms of arousing energy, you know, the elder monastics invite him to a seat, you know, and ask him to sit down and show him respect. Um, so, so they think like this. And then these junior monastics would practice accordingly and, you know, because they saw, okay, if the seniors are treating somebody respectfully, there must be something going on I should have respect to. And that would lead to their welfare and happiness for a long time because then they would receive teachings from this other monastic who practiced very well. And by receiving teachings and having that listening well and having respect and gaining you know, some inspiration to want to practice in the same way and arousing energy and so on. And so that works for their own benefit. Okay? So the Buddha is saying this. And then he continues, But now, Kasapa, the elder uh, monastics are no longer forest dwellers and do not speak in place in forest dwelling. Okay? The, the elder monastics aren't almost food eaters. Okay? Uh, and they don't speak in, ter- in praise of alms food. They don't wear rags. They go out and you know, get somebody to donate something to them. They didn't use just their triple robe. They would try and get out all sorts of other garments to wear. Um, they don't have few wishes they, and speak in praise of it, but they actually have many wishes and go about trying to get their wishes fulfilled. Um, they're discontent and they go about you know, trying to get stuff that's going to make them happy. Um, they don't speak in, in praise of, of uh, seclusion and solitude, but they like to hang out in town and talk to people. And uh, they get involved in all the family affairs and politics and sports and sales and things like that. And uh, they don't have energy and they don't speak in terms of arousing energy. So, uh, you know, the elder bhikkhus are like this. And now, here's what's very telling. Now it is the monastic who is well known and famous. One who gains robes, alms foods, lodgings, and medicinal requisites that the elder monastics invite to a seat. 
So it's no longer the one who's a good practitioner. It's the one who's well-known and famous and who receives a lot of offerings. Yeah. And you see this nowadays. You know, people who have a huge following, everybody says, oh, must be a very high teacher. You know, people who have very rich things, oh, must be a very great teacher. One of my teachers, Gashia Shitopdan, when you when you saw him in in Dharamsala, he would, I mean, he just looked like this old scruffy monk. He had a few whiskers, kind of gray whiskers, sticking out, and his hair kind of, you know, stuck out. And his shemdok was often unbalanced and sometimes too short, and his socks were old. They were the old Indian socks, and they would be falling down and wearing these old scruffy brown shoes and just kind of walk along. And if you didn't know who he was, it's like, well, here's this old monk, you know. But he was an incredible practitioner. And he lived in the mountains above Dharamsala for many years. Um, I'm sure he practiced Tantra, but even his attendant who came up and brought him food every week never saw his Tantric implements Mm -hmm. or never saw any pictures. He kept everything completely private. You know, very simple. His wish was to stay there and do retreat. His Holiness told him to go to Italy, of all places. You know, and I was at the Dharma Center in Italy then, so that's how I met him. And um, and he went because only because His Holiness told him. It wasn't his own wish. And so, of course, uh, we, there's a little Valletta. We made a nice Valletta with china dishes and silverware. And, you know, he's our teacher. Let's fix everything up very nice. And he came in and he said, get rid of this and give me plastic plates. Yeah. And we made this huge, you know, this big throne in the, in the gump in the meditation hall for him. And he walked in for his first day of teaching and he took the cushion off the throne, put it on the floor and sat down. <laughs> you know? I mean, just incredible practitioner and so humble, so humble. You know, but if you didn't know who he was, you would just kind of like, oh, this is some old monk and just, you know, push him out of your way as you were walking along the street or, you know, when you're doing the korwa around his holiness residence. Really incredible practitioner. You know, so he was the one who practiced like Kasapa. But, you know, you know, people look at somebody like that and, you know, often don't recognize the same thing with Genlam Rinpa. He was the Lama who came over to, to start DFF. He's the one of um, who wrote the book. What's the book called? Um, Calming the Mind? Okay, yeah, on how to develop Shine. And he was a great Shine practitioner. And uh, I would see him from time to time, sometimes in the U.S., mostly in India. And it was incredible. He just got more and more radiant, you know. Just really radiant. And he just went off to, you know, practice kind of, where did he go? Um, sick him, I think. Somewhere like that. But, you know, okay. So, um, but now the monastic who is well known and famous, one who gains robes, alm foods, lodgings, and medicinal requirements, that is, this is that bhikkhu, that monastic, that the elder monastics invite to a seat. 
saying, come monastic. What is the monastic's name? This is an excellent monastic. This monastic is keen on the company of his brothers in the holy life. Uh, Come monastic, here's a seat and sit down. Then it occurs to the newly ordained monastics. It seems that when a a monastic is well known and famous, one who gains robes, alms, foods, lodgings, and medicinal uh, requisites, the elder monastics invite him to a seat and, you know, cater to him. Uh, And so then these junior monastics practice accordingly, and that leads to their harm and suffering for a long time. Okay? If Kasapa, one speaking rightly, could say, those leading the holy life have been ruined by the ruination of those who lead the holy life, those leading the holy life have been vanquished by the vanquishing of those who lead the holy life. The idea is that that the, the community is spurred on by the example of people who practice well, and it's ruined by the example of people who don't. Yeah, that's, that's the point of what he's saying here. Okay? And so that makes us be very thoughtful. Now, this doesn't mean that every time somebody has a lot of wealth and is well-known that, that, you know, they're a, a bad teacher. We're not saying that. Okay? Because some people, like His Holiness receives a lot of offerings, but you look what he does with the offerings. Okay, and there's usually a list, like when he does the, first of all, he tells the people, the public teaching, don't charge very much so that more people can come. And then, you know, they want to give him the profit, and he usually says, you know, give it to some charities. And so at the end of the teaching, there's a list of uh, the, the charities that, the, uh, that has been donated to, often to the different monasteries and once in a while, a few nunneries, um, you know, but it's it's uh, donated to other people. Yeah, so if you, you use the offerings you receive in a wise way to benefit the Sangha, to benefit others, then that's fine. That fits in very well with the Bodhisattva type of practice. But what we want to avoid, whether one has fame or not, whether one has wealth or not, is thinking that the criteria for a good teacher is somebody who's famous and wealthy. Okay? So, yeah. In other words, taking those two things out of being the criteria by which we assess a good teacher or not. Okay? Because we have to check the teacher's qualities, not how they look in a public thing. His Holiness talks about this a lot. And and he talks about how sometimes the disciples really get into, you know, putting their teachers up. And how some people, when they're in the Tibetan community, they're they're not very, you know, they're kind of nobody. But they come to the West and all of a sudden they have a string of titles, you know, around their name. And, you know, and then the disciples put them up. And he... I don't think he was joking one time. He was talking about how sometimes uh, the disciples would put some, you know, because when His Holiness teaches, you know, that the seats of the high teachers are all up in front, that sometimes the disciples of one teacher or another would put a board or an extra cushion under their teacher's cushion so that their teacher was higher. <laughs> yeah, but the mind. 
really works this way, doesn't it? We're so attracted to pomp and ceremony, and especially in the Tibetan tradition where we have lots of pomp and ceremony, don't we? You know, well, you guys have mostly trained in the West. You haven't seen it in India, but whoa, you know, it's uh, it's really something. Okay, so I thought I would just say that, just to you know, to keep in mind that. Um, you know, and this fits in very well because we were talking about with Venerable Ming Yi in Singapore and, you know, this monk who has ran into trouble and, and so on and so forth. And so when somebody isn't careful about their actions, then it kind of shakes everybody up and shakes the whole Buddhist community up. Yeah. Okay. Then what I wanted to talk about was the different categories of vows. Okay, so I thought I should talk about something about the Vinaya, not just the monastic round, but give you something. Okay, so there's, um, first of all, you know, we have these different monastic traditions because as India, um, or different Vinaya traditions because as Buddhism spread to different places, it was an oral tradition and, you know, geographically there was things that were isolated and then they develop, you know, to some extent, different interpretations of the teachings, different Abhidharmas, and so forth. So here we're speaking from the viewpoint of the um, Dharmaguptaka Vinaya, which is the one followed in um, China, Korea, uh, Vietnam, and Shravasti Abbey. <laughs> okay. And uh, the, the Tibetans follow the uh, Mula Shravastavada. Okay, Um, but you know the Vinayas are remarkably similar considering that they were oral traditions for 500 years before they were written down and that they were separated from each other for so long. Okay, Um, so there's different classes of of offenses. Well, these are like classes, these names, they refer to classes of precepts and they also refer to types of offenses. Okay, so the first one in Sanskrit is parajika, um, and it means um, expulsion. No, it means defeat. Yeah, the translation is defeat. And so uh, these are the, the root precepts that if you go beyond them with all of the branches complete, then you are expelled from the Sangha, or rather you have distanced yourself from the Sangha. So it's not necessarily that the Sangha has to kick you out, but you, by your behavior, have chosen not to be a member of the Sangha. Okay? So there are four for, for men and eight of these for women. Okay? So... Uh, and the reason this happened is because we were saying that all the precepts came about because of people uh, doing things that were naughty. So uh, the women got the precepts from all the naughty things the, nun, the monks did, plus the ones that the nuns did, and the monks just got the precepts from the naughty monks. Okay? So that's why the nuns have more. Um, Okay, so the, the four root, and if, if you take the novice ordination, these are also the, the four root for the shamanera, shamanerica ordination. 
Okay, so it's killing a human being, uh, stealing something of value according to the society that you're in so that the law will get involved. Having sexual intercourse, doesn't matter what the orifice and the depth is, the, the width of a hair. Um, and then lying about one's spiritual attainments. So those are the four roots, and those apply uh, to men and to women. Uh, for the women, there's four extra ones. One is, um, is petting. Petting, do it, you're making out. Okay? <laughs> Trying to say this in nice. There's two actually that, that comes in. And the, okay, so there's one about, you know, making out and petting and things like that. So, and then, the, then there's another one about planning, you know, doing things that are kind of seductive so that you're planning to go meet somebody to, to have sex. Okay. Then there's uh, another one, which is um, if, a, if you know that a bhikshuni has broken one of these four parajikas and she's not confessing, then you also keep it secret. So that becomes a parajika for you. And then the eighth one is following a, a monk as a teacher who has been expelled from the Sangha. So if the monks have expelled a certain monk, but you continue to follow him, then it becomes a, a, a defeat for you and you're, you're kicked out of the You leave the Sangha. Yeah. Are you saying a monk that has been expelled but like continues to wear robes? Yeah. Anybody who was expelled if you follow as a teacher. Yeah. If if they're they've been expelled, yeah, a monk who has been expelled and he continues to, you know, act like a monk and pretend to be one, mm-hmm. and then you follow him as a teacher, then that becomes a defeat for you. But if a monk was expelled and then took on lay clothes and was going to create a lay person at that point, then it wouldn't be a defeat? Well, you know, at the time of the Buddha, monastics did not have lay teachers. Mm. Yeah. That didn't come about until the rise of the Mahayana. At the time of the Buddhas, that didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. So it's four for the men, eight for the women. Okay, so those are the, the parajikas. So those are the, the defeats. They're the most severe ones. And that's the bottom line to break those. Okay? And to break them, you have to you know, have all the factors complete. But don't get smug thinking, oh, it's so easy you know, to keep those and I'll never get in that kind of situation because I know people who have broken them and who were good practitioners, but something happened. Okay. Then the next category of precepts is called um, Sangha Vashesha. And the Sangha Vashesha means remainder. In other words, it's a serious infraction, but you still have a remainder of your ordination. Okay. So um, the, the, somebody who's done one of these, it's like a person who's crippled, who's kind of hanging on by just a thread. And if you look at a lot of these ones, there's, you know, the monk or the nun has done some negative action 
And then the Sangha comes and admonishes them, and they don't accept the admonishment. So it's a Sangha Vesesha, not only because they did the, the harmful action, but especially because they wouldn't listen. So there's some of the precepts that they're given one warning, you know, and if they don't uh, heed at that time and, and confess at that time, then this is Sangha Vesesha. There's others that it requires three warnings. The Sangha gives you three warnings. And if you don't kind of admit that you did it in those three warnings, then you've committed a Sangha Vesesha. Okay? And, and I, don't, I haven't studied the monks, so I don't know what the monks, maybe there's some forget the warnings, it's just if you do it. You know, it's a Sangha Vesesha. I haven't studied that. I should. Um, so somebody like this, who's hanging on by just a thread, then there's this whole procedure for rehabilitation. So first, they have to go in front of the Sangha and confess. And if they've kept their offense hidden and haven't confessed for any number of days, then they have to do one practice in which they kind of stay away from the Sangha. They're supposed to live kind of a, a little bit away from the Sangha so that they can contemplate their, their wrong action. So they have to stay away from the Sangha for as many days as they kept their fence hidden. Then they have to do, uh, I, I don't know what, if it's one week or two weeks for the men, but it, for the women it's two weeks of what's called manata. And that, at that point you come back into the community, but you sit at the end of the row you don't have any monastic privileges, you know, nobody, you, the lay people can't show you respect. The people who were junior to you before can't show respect. You can't ex- receive service from the juniors. You can't, um, you know, voice your opinions in the Sangha meetings. You, and, and what you have to do is serve the Sangha. So you have to serve tea, you have to clean up, you have to do all these kind of chores and you do that for two weeks after you've spent that time you know kind of alone meditating meditating then there's a a series then there um, there's a ceremony at the end of the manata that has to be done for the women with 40 monks and 40 nuns I'm sorry 20 monks and 20 nuns so 40 people all together for the monks, they just need 20 monks, in which you are then formally reinstated in the Sangha. So it's a big hassle <laughs> to do this, because be, you know you have to get that many people together before you can be formally reinstated and sit in your place in the line again. And it's also extremely embarrassing, you know, because then all these people know that you broke a Sangha Pesesa. So I think what they're doing here is using that factor of how embarrassing it is to help people restrain from doing these things. Okay, And interestingly, the Sangha Vesesas for the men and the women are not exactly the same. Okay, there, There's some difference. For the men, for example, masturbation is, is one of these, is a remainder. For the women, it's not. It's a, it's a different category of offense. Okay? 
So um, in the Dharma Gupta, the women have 17, the bhikshunis have 17 of these, and the monks have 13 of them. Then there's also another category of, um, of precepts that are called indefinite ones, and only the monks have these. And there's, there's two precepts in them. Again, I haven't studied them really well, but what they have to do with is if a monk is making sexual overtures to a woman or, you know, catcalling or coming on to her or uh, trying to seduce her or, you know, doing this kind of thing, then they consider the testimony of the woman in deciding what level of offense the monk has committed. Okay, so that's why it's called indefinite because they call her in and they trust her testimony about the sexual harassment that she was receiving. Okay, so only the monks have that one. Then the third category is called Piasatika. And within the Piasatika, there's there's two kinds of them. Okay, Piasatika means laughs. Okay, so there's the um, uh, Nasagika Piasatika, which means laughs with for, for, forfeiture. And then there's just plain old paesitikas, which are lapses. Okay? So for the women, there's uh, 30 of the lapses with forfeiture and 178 of the just lapses. And, uh, and then for the, for the men, for the monks, there's 30 of the forfeitures with... Uh, lapses with forfeitures, and 90 plain lapses. Okay? So these, the, the lapses with forfeitures, they involve getting something in a, in a way that's unkosher. Okay? They have to do with the material things you have and how you've procured them. So, um, for example, telling a householder, a householder wants to make you an offering and you tell them what kind of cloth to get and get very nice expensive cloth. Um, handling money and gold and silver is included in this. Buying and selling, doing any kind of business. Bartering. Um, this thing I spoke about yesterday of diverting offerings. Uh, there's a, uh, also having more robes than you're supposed to have. You know, there's another c- a ceremony that's called the katina, which I'll talk about anyway. But, well, I won't bring that in. It's too complicated right now. But basically having more robes than you're supposed to have, uh, having more alms bowls than you're supposed to have, uh, which is one. Um, <laughs> you know, so basically just kind of, you know, accumulating stuff uh, that you shouldn't be having, like money and extra robes, extra bowls, uh, diverting offerings, getting stuff for yourself or for your friends or something like that. Okay? So, in this case, how it's treated if somebody has, has transgressed this kind of precept is they go in front of the Sangha community and they have to give back whatever it was that they procured by these unkosher means. And then what's very interesting is after they give it back, the Sangha returns it to them. Yeah? 
So then it's kind of really like, oh, I got this by illegal means. Everybody knows it. I gave it back, and now they're telling me I can have it. Okay? So uh, I think that makes you never want to do that again. (laughs) Okay? Then the ordinary lapses. Those are things like uh, eating in the afternoon, um, killing animals, uh, quarreling with other people, dragging other people's bedding out of their room. Uh, <laughs> oh, they did wild things at the time of the Buddha. They were sometimes really wild. Um, <laughs> you know, you get mad at somebody, so you drag their mattress out and throw it out and say, you know, go to another room. I don't want you in here. Um, you know... <laughs> Being disrespectful, accusing other people. It's very negative to accuse people of, for example, committing a defeat or committing a sangha facessa, a, a remainder. It's very negative uh, out of maliciousness to accuse them of doing that. Or it's very negative, uh, you know, you might accuse them, but you're just kind of, you know, you just want to stir up trouble. Yeah, so you kind of lie. You know it isn't true, but you lie and tell them. So other kinds of lies are included in the, in all these these um, these lapses. What else is in there? Well, there's so many. You know, getting a massage. Yeah, getting a massage. I think is in that one. You know, for for like wearing clothes. Uh, you know, unless it's for health reasons. Um, uh, wearing jewels and ornaments and. Uh, you know, sitting on high beds and thrones, um, all the, these kinds of things that, you know, they're um, amongst. Oh, and there's, no, those are in the other category. Yeah, so there's lots of ones here that are just basically not being a very nice person to live with. You know, having your, your pea pot from last night and you throw it over the wall without looking on the other side. Um, you know, pouring water on grass where you could be killing the living beings. You know, these kinds of things. So, yeah. So those are lapses, and those are confessed by going before a bhikshu or bhikshuni who is pure in that regard and confessing. Okay? So those are the lapses. Then there's another one called pratidasanias. And uh, that means to confess to others. And these are, um, okay, there's eight for the nuns and four for the monks. And these you can you purify by confessing to another bhikshu or bhikshuni. The, the, the nuns usually confess to nuns, the monks to monks. Um, and what these pratidasanya are about is you've accepted things as medicine that you haven't really needed. So you've asked people to give you meat or to give you milk or to give you ghee, this clarified butter, to give you honey. There's these eight different things that if you ask the lay people to give you, but you don't really need them as medicine. So that's what these pratitasanias are. And then... There are a hundred sikas, or, or um, siksakaraniyas, okay? So there's a hundred for the, the women, 
uh, and I think for the men too. Yes, a hundred for the men and for the women. And then there's seven rules for ending dispute, and it's the same number for the bhikshus and for the bhikshunis. So, um, and the name of this kind of offense is, uh, is uh, duskrita, which means verbal or physical wrongdoing. So the six Karaniya precepts, the hundred of those, those have a lot to do with etiquette. You know, chewing with your mouth full, making your food into a clump and popping it into your mouth, wearing your robes unevenly, wearing them inside out, wearing a hat, wearing sleeves, wearing a scarf on your neck, um, skipping, dancing, standing with your hands on your hip, um, hands on your hips, um, uh, entering a layperson's house laughing and joking, you know. Uh, and then there's 20, is it 25 in this one? Yeah, I think, that, I think they're in this one. Anyway, certain uh, precepts involving stupas. But, you know, basic things of etiquette. Okay, so there's a hundred of those. And then there's seven ways for ending disputes that are not actual precepts, but they're just ways that the Buddha established for um, making the community harmonious again. Okay. Okay. So, what else can I tell you about these? Um, So, if somebody commits a a defeat, then uh, you're no longer allowed to live with the Sangha. And it says you will be what you were before. In other words, a lay person. Uh, so they can't stay. You can't stay in the order. You can't consider yourself uh, a monastic anymore. You've got to give back the robes. Um, you know, and it's by one's own actions that one has distanced oneself from the sangha. Okay, and so you can't participate in any of the uh, decision making processes of the Sangha or anything like that. Okay? Um, so that that is one way that you get the, the result of expulsion. Aside from these defeats, there's other ways in which you could be expelled from the Sangha. So, um, to, for a complete expulsion, which is, you know, you're no longer a, a monastic, then... Um, one thing is that you're not fit to be a Sangha member. In other words, let's say somebody got ordained with the wrong motivation. So you might have remembered in your ordination ceremony, there was this thing about um, uh, becoming a thief. Yeah, are you a thief of the Dharma? So what that means is somebody who joins the Sangha in order to learn the Dharma um, and then to use that to, to strengthen one's own wrong beliefs and to uh, tell, teach other people their wrong beliefs. So it's kind of like infiltrating the enemy to get the scoop so that you could go, you know, create trouble outside. Okay, so it says here, um, somebody might uh, incorporate Buddhist beliefs into their own made-up system so that it looks like their teaching is similar to the Dharma, and in that way they gain uh, offering and support from the public, you know, by saying, I'm a Buddhist, and da-da-da-da, but in actual fact, you know, what they're teaching is not the Dharma, the pure Dharma, okay? 
Um, and she's teaching, or he's teaching, uh, to satisfy egotistic ambitions, like to get offerings, get respect, and to sustain their own uh, wrong views. Okay. Um, yeah. So if somebody there, when you ordain, there's 13 major obstacles you have to be free from. But if somebody wasn't honest when they got ordained and they actually had one of those obstacles, then when it's found out, then they are expelled from the Sangha. Okay? And then Shramanera and Shramanericas are expelled if they, um, if they break the four roots. Okay? So for the nuns, you don't, ha- you don't have the other uh, four. For the the novices, the four for the novices, the root ones. Actually, in in the the for the novices, they're called similar to defeats because they aren't only the fully ordained can commit defeats, so the novices commit similar to defeats. But there's four, you know, killing, stealing, sexual conduct, and lying about entanglements that. Uh, that if a shramanera shramanerica commits, they're expelled from the sangha. Also, they can be expelled from a sangha if they refuse to give up certain wrong views. So somebody takes the novice ordination, they're holding up, uh, holding a wrong view. For example, and this is the one that always is given as the example, that um, you hold that sexual desire is not a hindrance to the path. Okay. So somebody holds that kind of wrong view, or they may hold some other kind of wrong view, very staunch, stubborn wrong view, and you know they won't give it up even when people talk to them. Uh, so the novices can be expelled for having wrong views like this. Okay. Um, then the then for the remainders, yeah. Then those I already described what happens that you know you're separated from the community as long as you've kept it hidden. You have the two weeks for the nuns, uh, monks. It might be less. I'm not sure. Uh, two weeks manata in which you offer service and you lose your sangha privileges, and then uh, the ceremony at the end in which you're rehabilitated with all those people looking at you. Okay. <laughs> And so Sangha uh, Vesesa also means impaired, disabled, and so you have to really rely on the Sangha to survive. Yeah, so you're allowed to come back into the community. Hopefully that you have this attitude of regret and that you really want to rely on the Sangha to help you uh, practice properly. Okay. Um, then... Okay, so there's the Vinaya talks about three kinds of expulsion. So we talked about complete expulsion just before, about either for the fully ordained, breaking one of the roots, or um, not being qualified to ordain in the first place. Okay. Um, and for the, for the novices, for breaking one of the roots or holding wrong views. Okay, then there's also another kind of expulsion. second type of expulsion is called expulsion resulting from breaking up a harmonious sangha. For example, like what Devadatta did, you know. So even though this, per, you know, this person just wants to create schism, they try to become a teacher themselves and break up the community and have people follow them and not follow 
you know, not be harmonious as a community. So all this schismatic kind of stuff, putting oneself up to, to and creating so much trouble and conflict. It is awful. You know, it's awful for the practitioners. And what the lay people do is they look at the Sangha and say, you know, if the Sangha's acting like this, you know, it really makes lay people lose faith. Okay, so though, though this person is somebody who's a troublemaker like this, they don't lose their status as, as a bhikshu or a bhikshuni. They're no longer allowed to uh, live with the monks and nuns. So you're expelled in terms of your living place. Okay. Then there's a third kind of expulsion, which is temporary expulsion. And so this can arise in three different situations. One is uh, a refusal to admit your wrong actions. So these are like refusals, the wrong actions being the, the remainders, and you refuse to admit them. So you're warned one time or three times, and you say, oh, no, no, I didn't do that. Anyway, so-and-so and so-and-so do that, and you don't criticize them. You just criticize me. You're partial. Yeah, this comes constantly in the precepts, you know. Somebody's confronted with their own negative behavior, and they say, oh, the sangha is partial because, look, so-and-so other people do it, and you don't criticize them, but you pick on me and tell me I'm not practicing right. It's exactly what we did when we were kids, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so this kind of thing, then it's a temporary expulsion. Um, another temporary expulsion is if you re- if refuse to accept others' admonitions. So if you're, you know, sassy and argumentative and like we just read about in, in here, then there's a temporary expulsion. Or if you refuse to give up and repent your wrong views. Yeah. So the for the bhikshus and bhikshunis, you aren't expelled totally like the novices are for having a wrong view but you can have you can suffer a temporary expulsion until you confess your wrong view okay and so here to settle this with the temporary expulsion the sangha tells the person to live somewhere else so that they can uh, contemplate their attitude and their actions they still have the identity of a monastic but they're not allowed to interact with the monastic community or to come to uh, Posada to the thrice uh, monthly confession Um, and so when her attitude or his attitude changes then with sincerity she can come before the community and confess and and then the Sangha can dissolve their previous decision to, to expel her temporarily Okay, and at that point she's welcomed back into the community again. So you can see that there's, you know, unless one really, you know, I mean, with the root precepts, you know, those you just do, there's no warnings regarding those. You know, if you do them, you know, you're out of control, you've separated yourself from the Sangha. But aside from those, there's, you know, we're given so many chances, we're admonished. Yeah, even if we uh, don't listen to the admonishment, we have to suffer a, a, a temporary expulsion. You know, if we realize our wrong ways and we come back and admit it and apologize, we're welcome back into the community. So I think the community, by and large, does all it can to, to keep the members in it. 
But then we have to be a willing member of the community. And if we're creating division, if we're, you know, not accepting admonition, if we're not keeping the important precepts, then what to do? What can the community do? Okay. Then there's... um, Oh, we're over time. Okay. So... Due to this man-a-reason, attain the enlightened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mine, not your born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase for 